I'm Colby. I'm a sophomore here. Thank you. So we are in Ecclesiastes 5, starting with verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong or that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. Do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow is a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. And then chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. We are in week five of the book of Ecclesiastes in our series called Chasing the Wind. And tonight, as we look through chapter 5 and talk about deconstructing dangerous religion, there's three places we're going to go in these seven verses. The first is uh, deconstructing dangerous religion. Why? The second is if we're going if we're, if we're to deconstruct dangerous religion, we've got to be able to recognize it. So that's the second place, recognizing what exactly is dangerous or toxic spirituality And then lastly, we're going to end uh, talking about embracing true religion, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ contained in the scriptures. So let me um, add my prayer to Heather's real quick with y'all, and uh, and then we'll get into this. Jesus, um, I say amen to what Heather said. We want to be people who expect you to be who you are, which is a shepherd of lost sheep and found sheep, a savior of sinners, one who joyfully receives the ungodly, the weak, the sinner, the dead, the struggling, the limping. This passage, Lord, uh, is, it just seems even more important than any we've talked about because it talks about the ways that we get caught up in a hamster wheel of thinking we're relating to you, but all it's really doing is making us tired and making us resent you and getting us more and more lost. So come and find us tonight, even through this passage. I really pray that you would do that. We really need it. We ask this in your name, amen. Well, over the past year, I think, um, many of us in this little community uh, have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, right? If you don't know what that is or you haven't gotten to listen to it, it's a podcast on that. The Rise and the Fall of this church or network of churches in Seattle that was planted by a pastor named Mark Driscoll, who was kind of a celebrity pastor about 10 years ago, planted by him, I think, in the early 2000s. And uh, it grew exponentially pretty early on from when it was planted. Began in, you know, some storefront somewhere, and within 10 years, there was multiple locations. There was 20 or 30,000 members between all all the sites. He was a charismatic, provocative preacher. He became nationally famous. Mars Hill was one of the first churches to kind of 
leverage the internet, YouTube, podcasts, to get their messages out there. And he was a really popular preacher, even in kind of RUF kind of circles. Um, Taught a lot of the same stuff that we taught, approached the Bible in some similar ways. But as Mars Hill grew in notoriety and fame and power and money and membership, um, it also grew in the amount of problems that it had and the amount of stories that were coming out, getting leaked or blogged about, about what was really going on in this church that was a really sexy church, the least, uh, the least churched, most secularized city in America, and it's just exploding. But there was another narrative coming out of this. There's more than meets the eye that's going on here. And the stories that popped up, the blogs that were coming out, were, were using the word, this is a dangerous church. Particularly the leadership is dangerous, toxic, um, not healthy. And uh, I mean, they spent a whole podcast series, I don't know, 12 or 15 episodes, so uh, we could talk a lot about this, but I'll just, uh, the rough sketch of what was going on was um, kind of spiritual abuse. So, you know, pastors who would basically use their status as a pastor over you as leverage. And so if you disagreed with anything that the leadership had decided, It's not just let's agree to disagree, it's I'm a shepherd, you're a sheep, and you're refusing to submit to the leaders that Jesus himself has put over you, you're in sin, you're kicked out of the church, and no one here will will associate with you at all anymore. For the most minor things, questioning any decision, Uh, toxic masculinity kind of stuff, where this kind of biblical manhood thing became a tangent from the gospel and a fixation this kind of beat-your-chest male chauvinism kind of stuff that hurt the men and the women in the church. Kind of a shame culture, and on and on and on. Now, here's the problem. There was a lot of problems. Here was a big problem. This was Seattle. I don't know what you call someone from Seattle. Seattleite? Whatever they're called. These people were... A little space joke for you. Uh, <coughs> these people grew up in the least churched, most secular city in America. They did, most of them didn't have a church or Christian background. Most of them didn't know anything about the Bible other than what Mark Driscoll taught them about the Bible. Their only Christian bubble was this church. It's all they knew. They had nothing else to compare it to. Therefore, they had no ability to distinguish true Christianity from perverted forms of Christianity, warped versions of it things that had been blown out of proportion or over-exaggerated or whatever else or taken out of context. They weren't able, uh, they weren't able to tell the difference because they didn't know any difference. And so what happened is they conflated or confused, mingled together both healthy Christianity, gospel spirituality, and toxic, unhealthy, corrosive spirituality. It was all in the same thing, kind of like cyanide in a glass of water, colorless, odorless, tasteless, and you can never unseparate the two. So you drink the water and it's poisoned. So they're in, they're in the midst of this kind of spiritual climate, religious climate, and the toxic stuff that's there, the damaging stuff that's there can't be separated out from the healthy stuff that was there and it was poisoning people. And because so many of the members of this church from Seattle conflated toxic Christianity to your spirituality or wrong ways of relating with God, they conflated that with gospel Christianity, biblical Christianity, 
When Mars Hill imploded, guess what else imploded in their minds? Christianity. God himself. Their faith. And, and so, so began a process for many of the members and many of the people in former leadership positions, a process of deconstructing. It's a word we've talked about more lately. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's basically, um, people mean different things by it, but basically it's a process of kind of dismantling things that you used to believe. And then saying, oh, I've seen the light now. Actually, the Bible's not true. Christianity doesn't hold any water. It's just kind of sentimental religion for people who can't really think and whatever else. I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. And you're kind of taking apart what had been built up and coherent and seeing it in a new light. So that's what's happening with some of the people after the implosion of this church. Um, at the last episode of the podcast, it's focused on those kind of deconstruction stories of some of the people there. The name Paul Tripp resurfaced in the podcast, and his voice popped into that episode. Now, if you don't know him, I quote him a lot. He's a very well-known, very well-respected theologian, counselor, pastor, author. And he had a front-row seat to the worst months of Mars Hill's implosion because they called him in, they hired him, to try to come in and save the ship to help facilitate some reconciliation and some forgiveness and repentance and healthy practices. And he resigned after a few months and he said, I have never in my entire life seen a more toxic environment than what I experienced there. So he comes in this last episode and this is what he says up here. This quote. He says, we Christians should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it. Our faith becomes a culture. In other words, our faith kind of gets attached to the baggage of religion or of faith or of spirituality. Our faith becomes a culture so webbed or conflated with or, or mingled into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. Then he says there's a devastating humility that comes when you're willing to deconstruct something that you've given your life to. To say, maybe I got some of this wrong. And to go back to the drawing board. Now, I need to be very careful here. And I want to be very, very clear. Because what he's not saying, he's not just kind of giving a blanket, you know, um, blanket condoning, arbitrary, willy-nilly, deconstructing, like maybe you feel gaining some momentum in your heart or a roommate of yours who's kind of just arbitrarily assumed the throne of God and is now editing out of Christianity all the stuff that never sat well with your opinions. It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about aimless errant, kind of a, a missile without a guidance system, doubt or skepticism that's just taking you along for the ride. He's saying Christians, a normal part of the life with God, a normal part of healthy spirituality is being able to take a scalpel and cut out the cancers that occasionally infect our faith, our spirituality, Christianity as we know it. For example, there is baggage that comes with being an American Christian. Are you aware of it? There's baggage and blind spots that come with being a Southern evangelical or Christian. Are you aware of that? The, the, the things that, it, that, that make, makes you extra sensitive, it makes you trigger in certain areas that other people from other places don't. It makes you really weirded out by certain conversations that other places you're not. 
Being a Western Christian in the 21st century has cancers in it that have to be cut out so that we can distinguish the two and say, this is the gospel handed down in the scriptures from the apostles, from Jesus, and this is some weird cancerous growth that attached to that. This will become more clear in a minute if, if it still seems a bit abstract to you. But Tripp is saying part of life with God is not a willy-nilly deconstruction, but it is a, it is a delicate surgical excising um, unhealthy, toxic things that are actually not what God describes relationship with him as like. That's essentially what the teacher in Ecclesiastes that we've been listening to for the past month is saying in chapter 5. You remember he's been saying over the past few weeks that everything happens under the sun? Everything happens in this context of hevel or frustrated and frustration, frustrating, vaporous. It's, everything's a chasing of the wind. Everything happens outside of the Eden that it was made for and we were made for. Everything is complicated. He said that wealth is complicated, productivity is complicated, work is complicated, rest is complicated, pleasure is complicated. He's saying all of that stuff happens under the sun. And then in chapter 5, he says, it's not just respect or academic success or love or productivity that happens under the sun and is frustrated. But guess what else is frustrated? And guess what else happens and takes place under the sun in this hevel existence? Church happens there. Religion happens there. Spirituality happens there. Our perception of true Christianity happens outside of Eden. We don't have a perfect environment to get to experience this in, but a corrupted environment, in a difficult environment, in a challenged environment. So you can turn anywhere pretty much um, in the scriptures to see evidence of the stuff that I'm talking about. This is Jesus um, deconstructing first century Judaism right in the faces of the Pharisees, and he's saying, you've got it all wrong. Yes, 90% of what you say and what you believe is true. It's there in the scriptures, but what you've, how you connect these dots is not burden lifting. It's, it's life taking. It's spiritually suffocating. He says in Matthew 23, your disciples, Pharisees, you make them twice sons of hell because of the burdens you lay on their back and how you lead them away from my father and his mercies because of the baggage that's attached to what you think true spirituality really is. Paul did this with, with, the, with the people in, in the church in Galatia. He, he takes them to task. And he says, what happened to you? I know you. It's like if I left here and five years later, I found out that what y'all were talking about in your community groups and what was being preached from up here and what everyone was like getting together to talk about all the time was like moralism or trying to outperform each other before God so that he'd be really impressed with you. And I was like, guys, I know you. That was not the culture that we had. What is going on? That was Paul with his church in Galatia. And he says, how did this become about performance again and about spiritual credentials that you've earned from all these little things you're doing? Something has come in and infected your spirituality. So this is just proving that first point of the call 
to deconstruct the dangerous seeds of dangerous religion, dangerous spirituality. Where do we see this in the passage more clearly? This is a new strain of thought for our teacher. He was on a different topic, and then in the beginning of chapter 5, he shifted gears to talk about church under the sun. In the very first words out of his mouth when he's thinking about this, he says to all of us, hey, listen, guard your steps when you go to church. Walk very carefully when you come to RUF and you become a part of this community. Be very careful. Be on guard. What does he mean by this? Why is he saying this to us? Well, he's saying, watch your step, because danger lurks around us, in the community, and in us. Church under the sun, spirituality outside of Eden warrants our caution and our shrewdness and discernment. Now listen, he doesn't say danger lies within and within you, so don't go to church, don't be involved in community, which is what some people say. And I want to say this with sensitivity. I'm not denigrating these comments, but a lot of times, don't you hear friends of yours, or maybe you think this of like, well, I tried Christianity, but it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. People don't, um, and I'm like, I have found that to be the case too. I am one of those hypocrites, and so is the person who is criticizing the community for that. We're not pro-hypocrisy, uh, but this is a place for weak people clinging to Jesus by faith. Um, but Jesus is the one who told us to expect a mixed bag of people inside his church. Jesus is the one who said, the sheep and the goats are together in the same pen. The wheat and the weeds grow in the same field. The spiritually dead and the truly spiritually alive, people who think they know God and people who actually know God, people who talk about grace, but also people who have experienced and received and come alive in grace, all sit in the same room and all say, I go to this church or I'm a part of this ministry. God's the one who told us that's what you have to expect in this life. Heaven's the only place where there's a purified church, and you know what you're getting in everybody. So here's what the, here's what the teacher is doing in Ecclesiastes 5. Um, you know when you see those little yellow signs that say, caution, wet floor? What do you do when you see that sign? I always, uh, because... I don't know, none of my shoes have tread on them. They're all like worn down. So like whenever it rains, I bust it. So I like go into these places and they have those little yellow signs and like I slow down and I look at the floor because otherwise everyone's gonna be looking at me on the floor. So I'm like, I see that sign and those signs are made to cause you to stop and look around and place your foot and distribute your weight very carefully lest you fall and get injured. God has put a yellow sign at those two doors and those two doors, and he said, be careful, be on guard, watch your step. And he's put that sign outside your local church, and he's put it outside the living rooms on Herring Street where you talk about this stuff, and in Pineview, and at your community group leader's house, and at Freshman Fellowship, and in your prayer time, and in your Bible reading. He's put these yellow signs that says, be careful. It is slippery. It's so easy to slip off into something that is not the good news of my son Jesus, who saves and changes sinners. 
He's saying we will slip this way, we will slip that way. Either way, we'll get injured. And he says nobody in this room is immune. Nobody here has learned the lesson and like, well, amen, Ben. These people need to hear this. No, you need to hear it. I need to hear it because the teacher doesn't give anyone out. He says, y'all guard y'all's step when you go to church. When you go to the house of God, be careful. So no one's immune to it because the floor is wet. We're t- we, we tend to slip. So what specifically is so dangerous about, or what, what's the toxic part of toxic spirituality? What's the dangerous part about dangerous religion? Why do we need to be so cautious? One thing I already just, I gave mention to, and I won't repeat it uh, at length, but um, the community of faith, God's people, the church in this age, which means before Jesus comes back or we go there, uh, is a mixed bag. So fools populate the church right next to wise people, and it's really hard to tell the difference uh, because foolishness deludes you and deceives you and other people too, so it's hard to tell. Uh, who, is, who is truly alive really knows Jesus and who, who maybe is in process and coming to know him or being pursued by him. The lights are beginning to come on. Who's just kind of sitting in a chair for ulterior motives other than I'm curious about God. I need some kind of refuge. I need hope. I need something else because nothing's working in my life. It's hard to tell the difference of why are you here? Why are the people next to you here? But that's one reason why uh, we've got to be on guard is because um, fools populate the seats as much as wise people. Jesus tells a story, and, and spiritual fools. So here's an example. Is Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 that I love. And by the way, if you are ever growing a little bit confused or muddled about what's the gospel and how's it good news, who is God for? Who is in his heart of hearts? Who is he inclined to? Who does he favor? Go to Luke 18. It's crystal clear. Jesus says, uh, shares this story about two, two folks who go to uh, church. One is a respected um, leader in the church. A Pharisee. And the other is some dude who just rolled out of the street into the building, a tax collector. And he says, the, and these two guys are praying, and Jesus is just comparing their prayers, and he says, the Pharisee, the, the well-respected teacher, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, oppressors, adulterers, Even that guy who just rolled in, I thank you that I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I mean it. I'm sincere. I give tithes of everything I get. And on and on and on. Then Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, he didn't feel like he belonged in that church. So he's going to stay at the back door so he can be the first to leave. He says, he prays. He would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He didn't even feel worthy. But he beat his breast in desperation saying, God, Be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Who do you think went home justified? Who do you think went home under the permanent smile and favor and fatherhood of God? Who did God declare was enough? The guy who said he was enough? Or the guy who said he wasn't enough and I need you to make me enough? This guy. Jesus says, who went home justified? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And I'm, that's, this, is an, this is a parable of spiritual fools 
and the spiritually wise. We talked last fall about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who know they don't have it and they hunger for it. That's the wise, the poor, the broken, the needy, the desperate, the I don't got anywhere else to go kind of people. You're my only hope. Hail Mary on Jesus. Versus these people who are like, I got plenty of other places to go. Like, I'm doing pretty okay in this thing. Fools. What happens when there's a church or ministry populated by a lot of these people? Don't you think that's a contagious thing in the culture? Don't you think an insider mentality is prone to develop of like, Lord, I'm... I'm so glad we're not like that club on campus. It's always tabling in front of Tate. Man, can you, those people. Or a sense of kind of, um, you know, we get really into just accountability and seeing how everyone's performing day to day. Did you mess up? How are you doing? I'm not against accountability, but I'm against only accountability. Do we become a place like that? That's what he's saying. It's dangerous. Be careful. Be on guard. Because that kind of culture can develop where there are Spiritual fools who don't realize they're fools and think they're wise. The the converse is dangerous as well. What if there was a culture where um, there's just a high percentage of people here who do not take God seriously? The reasons that you're here, and I'm not totally against you being here for social reasons or to find a friend or whatever, like we want to love each other well, but if that, you've been around a while and that's the only reason you ever come, uh, everything's an ulterior motive what happens when this room is populated with a ton of those people? None of your friends on your street take God seriously. Nobody ever remembers what they've heard taught from the Bible. Nobody ever talks about it. Nobody's ever processing it. No one's ever saying, you know, I've been, God really put this on my heart and I think I need to talk to you about it. I'm sorry for what I said the other week. Nobody's ever doing that. Would that be a spiritually terrifying and dangerous place to be? You bet, because that's contagious. Be on guard when you go to the house of God. Why? Because church happens under the sun too. Your spiritual life happens under the sun, just like mine. So that's kind of the dangers around us. What about those dangers that lurk inside of us? Let's just put a big old heading above it and say self-serving spirituality. But we get ahead of ourselves. If we're gonna define that first, we gotta say, well, what are the symptoms? Because how would we even know it's in us? I already told you the teacher thinks it's in you. He loves you, by the way. He's helping us. He's helping try to connect the dots, helping us to understand ourselves rightly. Um, but how would you know it's inside of you? Uh, this, is, this is really interesting, I think. Verse two and verse three is where we see the marks. It's how we would recognize a self-serving spirituality in us. And it's this, did you notice the repetition uh, when, when Colby was reading this, of all this stuff about hastiness and being rash and mindlessness and chatty and talkative and do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart, don't utter a ton of stuff before God. Then he says in verse 3, many words mark the speech of a fool. And then down in, um, where's, down in verse uh, 7, many words are meaningless or hevel. What is he talking about this? He's describing a person whose inside life is kind of marked by a hastiness, a, a hurriedness, a harriedness, a frenziedness, a squirminess in the presence of God. Busy, 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 squirmy, 
just kind of like restless, my knees tapping all the time, chattering, 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 talking, talking, talking. Some of the other translations, New Living Translation will translate the first verse in this uh, chapter as, it is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Going through the motions, your brain's not engaged, you're just doing stuff because it's what you've done. Mindlessly offering sacrifices, shooting off our mouths, speaking before we're thinking to God, being too quick to tell God what we think he wants to hear, never listening, never being still, never being silent, never realizing whose presence we're in. It's a weird set of symptoms, right? Like, it's just weird. It's not what you would expect, but it's what he says. Let me try to help bring this down to earth. Um, Queen Elizabeth just celebrated 70 years on the throne, right? Right? Or, yeah, she's not 70. She celebrated 70 years on the throne, I think. I'm not a big queen lady, but I'm getting a thumbs up. Okay. <clears throat> so 70 years, there's a lot of time for series, like the queen or whatever, or movies to be made about her. And I don't know what you saw, Iron Lady or the Queen or the Crown or whatever, but you've probably seen um, a moment when there were some people who were going to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace. So they get all dressed up and they go to the palace and they're waiting kind of outside the throne room or wherever she's going to meet him. And she comes in and pushes a little button and the butler like opens a door and they come in. Um, and there's protocol, like I looked it up today, there are, there's protocol of what you're supposed to do when you meet the queen. First, you're supposed to, men are supposed to bow their head and women are supposed to like curtsy. And then you're supposed to say your majesty. And then you're not supposed to talk until you're spoken to. Did you know that? Um, which sounds a little bit harsh, but it's an acknowledgement of she's the queen of England and you're you. We don't think this way in... 2022, but still, we know that. Like, you go to the Oval Office, are you going to go in and just chat away? Or are you going to be like, I'm kind of going to let him take the lead here? So it, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of who she is and where, who I am, where she is, where I am. It's an, it's an awareness of your settings and surroundings and reality. Imagine this thought experiment. You get to meet the queen. You and 10 other people won some contest. And, you, and uh, the door has just opened. You go into the throne room, and there's Queen Elizabeth. And um, some lady, could have been a guy, but in my metaphor, it's a lady. Some lady's there, and she just immediately starts just rambling on and chattering. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to meet you. I've been wanting to meet you since I was a little girl. I wanted to be a princess when I was a little girl, too. I love your kids. Little Prince George, he's so cute. Oh, there's gold everywhere here. How much did this stuff cost? Like, where do you sleep? What door do you come in? And what would you do in that situation? Cringe city. And what would everybody in the room want to yell out in unison? Shut up. What are you doing? You're in the presence of royalty. This is the queen. You're allowed to talk to her, but not. Look, the teacher, the teacher says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. What's the, what's the meaning there? Is he saying you can't talk to God until he talks to you first? Of course not. Jesus says when you pray, say, Father, Abba. 
The teacher is asking you, when you're in the presence of God in prayer, going about your day on North Campus or driving in the car or right now, are you aware of who he is and who you are? Are you aware of where you are? Or are you complete lights out to reality, to, to your surroundings, and, and you're the, the chatterbox, and someone's like, hey, this is the eternal, infinite, unchangeable God who has no beginning and no end. He made you. Never been a time he's not been. Why are you chattering? It's such a weird thing, but I think so insightful when you think about it. Why do we chatter before God? This is actually a theme throughout Scripture of chattering people before God. First uh, Kings 18, I'm not going to get into it or take too much time, but go read it sometime. It's the prophets of Baal and how chatterboxy they are with their fake god Baal trying to get him to wake up and act, but they can't get him to wake up. So Elijah simply says, God of Abraham and Isaac, prove to these people that you're God and light this altar on fire, and he does. Romans 3, Paul says, the main thing the law does is shut our mouths, which presumes our mouths were chattering, arguing our case, justifying ourselves, all the reasons why we're, we're enough. The teacher says, let your words be few. Listen, see him. Be near him, hear him. Perhaps he talks. Perhaps he has arms. What's the heart, though, beneath this dangerous, frenzied, busy, posturing uh, religion? You would probably say of that lady or guy who's meeting the queen, she's obsessed with herself. How can you be in the presence of royalty and all you're talking about is you? It's like it's such a telling lack of curiosity about the queen. Um, it would be like if, if one of you came to my house or you went to one of your friend's house and without even saying, hey, you just walked in and you turn on the TV or you raided the fridge or you're like, I just needed some AC, but you don't even acknowledge your friend. You're like, why'd you come to my house? Apparently not to see you. I came for TV. I came for AC. I came for the fridge. Why are we in the presence of God? Who did we come to see? Who did we come for? There's other reasons too. If, if the, the babbling, the chattering is the tip of the iceberg, what's beneath the surface? What's the heart motivation? Um, this is not the only reason. This is just a quick little perhaps. Chattery people sometimes are chattery because they're hiding something or avoiding something. Story. I was one of you one day when I was a college student here and I had a ministry intern track me down and corner me and ask for my number and call me and secure a lunch with me and I was like what's he gonna do what's he gonna ask about and I was not liking where he was taking the conversation I kind of I believed in God I was raised a Christian great church great family but I was not alive I did not know God and um, I was very concerned where I thought he was about to go in the conversation he was asking me about my spiritual life what's your prayer life like I'm like I don't know you um, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to chat a lot about how I need prayer for school and procrastinating that I would like do a better job of studying in advance. Chatter, chatter, chatter to keep this dude away from these 10 things over here I didn't want him asking about. I know this seems weird, but I would like you to 
consider the possibility of one reason you might feel anxious and squirmy and restless and talkative in the presence of God is that we're trying to do a magic trick over here because we're really worried about what he thinks about this. Could that be happening? I don't know if it is, maybe. Other reasons when you get down into verse four through seven is straight up manipulation and coercion of God. He's the puppet and we pull the strings. And our spirituality is what pulls the strings, our praying, our Bible reading, our, I put 20 hours a week into RUF, it's my main thing, I give so much to this place, that's a string to pull God to get him to do what we want. Or making vows. I mean, it's the weird language in, in verse 4 through 7, but when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fill it. What's he talking about? God, I didn't study at all for this class. I didn't even go to this class, but I'm doomed. If you get me through this class, I promise I'm done with putting off schoolwork. I will take it seriously. And then maybe you like slide by with a B minus, and you're like, praise God, he answered my prayer. Three weeks later, not in class, not studying. That's, it's how we work. And why do we make those vows? Um, to try to leverage God. We don't trust that he's a giver, so we think we've got to manipulate him and negotiate or bargain to get him to do even a base good thing. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, but when you pray, go to your room, close the door. Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this, then he says this, and when you pray, don't keep babbling like the godless. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. And he's, in other words, he's, it's a mentality of bigger's better. If this is eloquent, if it's repetitious, if it's every morning at 7 a.m., he's going to listen to me. Jesus says the reason God your Father listens to you because he's your Father and he loves you. Not because your introduction to your prayer caught his attention and he thinks that's amazing. It's false spirituality versus true spirituality. Verse one, when he talks about the mindless sacrifice of fools, that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about vows to God, that's what he's talking about. Before we conclude with this last point, I want to just come full, full, full circle to where we first started tonight, which was observing where we've been in this series so far. How we look to everything under the sun to make us enough, to be enough for us, to make us right or righteous. Oliver Berkman is a British journalist and he was in a very kind of post-Christian society. The Guardian is not some like Christian publication. It's a British tabloid. He was doing a book review on David Zoll's book, Seculosity, which I've told y'all you should go buy, it's amazing. And I'm quoting this guy about the book review because in three or four sentences, he says what it would take a long time otherwise. But this is the point uh, of that. I think it's a very helpful quote. Everyone these days, he says, treats something or other as a religion. Nobody goes to church anymore, but the religious urge remains. The hunger for what Zoll calls a feeling of enoughness or more archaically righteousness the sense that your existence has been validated, that urge remains. It's just that now we seek it elsewhere. We seek it in work or politics, technology, romance. Deep down, we're using these things to try and achieve salvation. 
enoughness. It follows that enoughness, if we are to achieve it, must come from reaching some level of accomplishment. But the problem is that seculosity doesn't work. Enoughness never comes. It's one thing to seek salvation in God or to stop seeking salvation, but the attempt to engineer your own salvation is doomed to fail. That's exactly what our teacher is telling us in Ecclesiastes 5. The attempt, Christian, not a Christian, whoever you are, the attempt to engineer our own salvation is doomed to fail. And the gospel of Jesus, embracing true religion, the true gospel, is that you don't need to engineer your own personal salvation. Because enoughness is not a goal to attain or achieve. Enoughness, righteousness, is a gift that is given for free. Jeremiah did a great job last night at Freshman Fellowship. We've spent all spring talking through Romans. We're up to chapter 5. He taught it last night, and it's this. This is where we end, by the way. Romans 1 is Paul saying, friends, don't we all look to created stuff to make us enough? Haven't we exchanged the glory of the personal, true, living, loving God for the created things? Don't we look to work and all the stuff we talked about to make you enough, to, to help you arrive, to measure up, to be somebody? And he says it doesn't work. And then he says in Romans chapter 2, hey, to you religious people, don't you try to use spiritual performance and how well you're doing to impress God and show him I'm enough to justify yourself? And he says that doesn't work and it just makes you resent God because you know he doesn't think that's enough. And then in Romans 3, Paul says, nobody's enough. No, not one. Nobody seeks God. Nobody understands. Nobody gets it. But then he says, enoughness has now been made manifest apart from the law, apart from performance, which is big news. How do you get enoughness? How do you become enough? Do you work for it? Do you achieve it? Is it a goal to attain? No, it is a gift freely from the hand of God, received by faith. When you look to Jesus and say, God says he is enough to make me enough, that's faith. I believe what he says. I believe what the Bible says about him. I believe it. I'm not enough. He's enough, and he can make me enough. The Father sent him to make me enough. And the teacher wants you to believe the sweet news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace and mercy of God your Father, who has not asked you to work or dance for your salvation, but to simply collapse and to receive it, and to therefore have peace for the first time with God. Paul says that in Romans 5, 1, when, you, when God justifies you and you don't have to justify yourself anymore, you're, guess what, you're not anxious, you're not restless, you're not hurried, you're not harried, you're not chattery, you're not just like, I don't feel safe in his presence. You're calm in the presence of Almighty God. How could you be calm in the presence of the Queen if you're hers, if you know her, if she loves you, if you have access to her, if you've been reconciled to her, if she gave her life for you, I end with a Scott Saul's quote. Many of us think that God does not, that God, uh, does, sorry, that God loves us to the degree that we are like Christ. 
But he says God loves us to the degree that we are in Christ who is enough. And union with Christ is something that's all or nothing. It's 100% or 0%. He is the head and you're the body. He is the groom and you're the bride. He is the vine and you're the branch. And you're one or you're two. Friends, see your God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and see the teacher bending over backwards to plead with you and to persuade you, whether you're a Christian or not or don't know what you are, to get off the hamster wheel of toxic spirituality and nervous spirituality and performative spirituality and collapse and feel the freedom of saying, I'm not enough and I never will be, and God has raised up one who is enough on my behalf. And now he's already issued a verdict over my life that I'm enough and he loves me and he's pleased with me as much as he is with Jesus. Mm -hmm.